Well, hello everyone. Welcome back to the Spooky Soup Podcast. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tessa. Okay, so I'm still like processing, even though I wrote the story and I shared the story from last week, like it's just nuts. So if you guys haven't listened to uh, our previous story, episode 29, or 28, excuse me, it's uh, it's pretty wild. I recommend you go back and check it out. Yeah, if you want to hear me die inside multiple <laughs> times, go back to it. <laughs> it's pretty rough, for sure. It's quite possibly one of the worst stories I've ever heard. But, like, in a good way for the podcast. But, like, it's still a bad story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Jesse told it beautifully. Thank you, thank you. Really framed that narrative really well. But, (laughs) (laughs) holy crap. (laughs) Awesome. That's the reaction I want. Perfect. Um, Just a quick note. Yeah. You know how you were talking about there's a song about that? Yeah. Um, It reminded me of the typo negative Christmas song called Red Water. Mm -hmm. I highly suggest you guys go listen to it. If you like a good gothic Christmas song that really hits you deep in the soul and makes you question everything. That's the one. <laughs> That's the one. For me, it's Jingle Bells. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Why do the bells need to be jingled? I, I don't know. Great question. Because <laughs> that means Santa's coming down with his sleigh. You hear the jingle bells, right? And who is he slaying? Uh, Krampus. Uh, Krampus could take him. Yeah. Fun side note. This is a little Christmas side note. In the DC comic universe, all the other mythical creatures get like so mad and jealous about Santa getting all the glory that they hire this hitman named Lobo to go kill him. So like this, so Lobo and Santa have this showdown. <laughs> okay, that's and awesome. I could be. I think I. I'm. I'm pretty sure I'm right. But I think spoiler. Lobo cuts. Uh, cuts off Santa's head and, <laughs> no and that's way. how the story ends so he John wicked him up <laughs> yeah 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 so fun fun stuff okay well I have um so I have two stories I'm going to read that were sent in from a listener yes this yeah. makes me happy in my bone <laughs> <laughs> uh, we love um receiving stories so if you guys have any they can be true they can be fake please send them in to us you can email them to us Spooky Soup Podcast 801 at gmail.com, or you can DM those to us on our Instagram. Uh, when I'm done with those, I have one more story that I found on Reddit that was pretty good that I wanted to share as well. Awesome. Okay, you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, so these two stories were sent in from a friend of mine from, from uh, school a long time ago. I haven't seen her in a long time. So, Sarah Rettenberger, thank you so much for sending these in. So, this is story number one. I don't think any of the people that were there that night told this story to anybody else. So, as far as I know, only four of us know about it, but yes, it is a true story. Years ago, when I was in high school, there was a house just off of Gentile Street in Layton, Utah, called the Gentile House. I see you cringing right now because I know that you know what it is. I know that you know that I know about this house. (laughs) It's not there anymore. It's gone. I've it is. gone looking. It's I can only find photos of it online, but it's like it never existed. Oh, it definitely existed. They tore it down for new developments. Well, screw that. So, so the story behind it is that a farmer and his family lived there. 
One night, he went crazy and murdered his wife and tortured his children. Soon afterwards, he hung himself, or that's what I've heard. He kept his daughter locked in a room and his son in a small sort of like chicken coop that was padded. One night, as dumb teenagers do, we decided to go visit the Gentile house. Uh, my friends and I, we called it the slaughterhouse. I was going to say, wasn't it called the slaughterhouse? Yeah, and yeah. yeah, pretty much. And didn't it have like a a wagon or something out front? Um, I swear I heard that from someone. Uh, it might have been like a wagon wheel or something, or something, but I don't remember a wagon. Weird. I don't know why that detail sticks out to me, but... Uh, yeah, so... Creepy. Um, so the, okay, so the story continues and it says the four of us walked onto the property and each of us voiced a feeling of being watched. Not quite uncomfortable, but there were definitely eyes on us. The house itself felt eerie, but it was just your typical rundown house with lots of holes in the floor, broken boards, smashed out windows, graffiti, etc. We explored the inside of the house first, nothing more than what you'd expect. Then we walked back outside, and there was the shack that the boy supposedly had been kept in, and inside were mattresses, three of them to be exact. They leaned up against the walls and on the floor. They had been torn apart uh, with the, the springs exposed, but that's where it felt the most creepy. Standing next to the shed, laid old farming equipment, but that's not what drew our eyes over in that direction. Next to the shed, plain as day, we all saw the same thing. A man, and he was holding a pitchfork. He had on dark blue jeans that were torn and a plaid yellow shirt. He just stood there, watching us, and we all froze. We slowly started to back away to head back to the car, and he started walking towards us. When I tell you I had never run faster in my life, I mean it. Running to the car, we got probably the distance of a block from the house and heard the most blood-curdling scream of a woman that I had ever heard in my life. I have never heard that scream in a horror film or in a haunted house. Nowhere and nothing compares to it. As we were running away, one of my friends started to have a hard time breathing. He said that it felt like something was grabbing him, but we wouldn't let him stop. We got to the car, we all piled in. It was a two-door car with the pull-forward seats, so getting in was kind of a pain, but we did it and we were desperate to get away. We drove. I don't remember the drive, but we ended up at a gas station with a McDonald's inside. We went in and my friend, who had a hard time breathing, still felt like he couldn't catch his breath. It took a while to calm things down, and we just sat in a booth. No one was talking or saying anything, but my friend said it felt like his chest was on fire, like something had grabbed him or was holding on to him still. When we went back to the car, we were standing outside and noticed on the trunk that there were scratch marks like something had clawed at the trunk as we were driving away. They were enough to actually scrape some of the paint off of the trunk, but there were only four marks. I don't know if it was a hand or maybe a farmer's pitchfork, but later that night, my friend sent me a picture of his chest, and he had four marks on his chest that were similar to the ones on the trunk. We never talked about this again. <gasps> That's terrifying. <laughs> I went to that place twice. Once, I was forced to go. I remember we were hanging out with friends. It was my birthday. And I didn't want to go, but... um this kid Tyler that was with us was trying to impress the girls that we were with 
So he was like, we're going to the slaughterhouse, going to the slaughterhouse. And I was like, dude, it's my birthday. I don't want to go. Like, I'm freaked out. I don't want to go. I was a wimp back then. But. I wouldn't want to go either. So <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Not a wimp. <laughs> um, I'm still mad at him about that. He never apologized. And, and I was, Tyler would be like that. And he's, Let's just say that. He's kind of dumb <laughs> like that. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry, Tyler, if you hear this. Uh, he's not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, the second time was much later. It was in high school. So probably, well, much later. It was probably like a year later. Um, my old friend Chris and I went there to film a music video for our media class. So that was wild. No way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Do you Wait, do you guys still have that? No. Oh. No, no, no. That was lost a long time ago. Dang. I'd love to see it. No, it's okay. No one needs to see that. <laughs> Wasn't that the same house you went to scare our sister? No, that was our other sister. Oh, okay. Okay. Ready for story number two? Sure am. Okay, so once again, this is also from Sarah. Sarah, you're awesome. Thank Heck you yeah. so much. Heck yeah. Okay, so this one is true as well. When I was 21, I bought my first place, a small little condo in South Ogden, Utah. After I purchased the condo, I found out that the community it was in used to be an army base and a POW camp back in World War II. I know that sounds funny because it's Utah, but there were actually were a lot of camps like that for um, World War II, World War One, and the Civil War. Yeah. In, in Utah. It was just like a nice place to bring soldiers to, like far away from the wars to like have them recoup. Yeah. So just just fun fact for the listeners. Plus we have all the forts. We have Hill. We have so many military-centric places here. Right. So um, it made sense because all the buildings look alike. They are white, some tall, and two stories, and some small single levels. But they have since been made into condos after the war. I used to work graveyards, and oftentimes when I would come home in the morning, my front porch light would be on or my living room light. I specifically remember checking and making sure I turned off all the lights before leaving. Sometimes when I would sit in my room, I could see shadows of people moving in the room next to me. It was a small little two-bedroom place, and I lived alone. I always saw three shadows, three different ones to be exact. Different heights, different builds, and they were all men for sure. When my now ex-husband moved in, I was still working the same graveyards, and he would tell me about the TV turning off and on on its own. The lights turning off and on and different things that I assumed these guys were doing to mess with him. Maybe they knew something I didn't. They had never acted that way with anyone else. I would also wake up in the middle of the night. My living room light would be on. My now ex, who turned out to be a closet drug addict and I would fight, he would always say the same thing and demand that we leave the house. He would tell me, there's something there, there's something behind you and it's big and it's black. I came to the conclusion that these three men were soldiers of the wars and their spirits had never passed on. And because of the way my ex acted and of what he said when we would fight, I think they were protecting me. Harmless, really, but I wonder what would have happened if we had ever gotten to a point of physically fighting, or he had done something to me while being on drugs. Would they have protected me? I tell this story because I think it's important to remember that not all spirits and not all hauntings are bad. Some people just like to stay in this world. There was another time, in that same condo, that I had come home from a graveyard shift and watched a little bit of TV. Before turning it off, 
I tried to get some sleep before the sun came up. Once I turned the TV off, the blinds in my room started to move as if someone were lifting them up and down. Either the AC or the heater were on, and no windows were open. I had no fans on. Nothing like that would explain it. So, of course, I was a little spooked. To calm myself, I turned the TV back on and the blinds stopped moving. So I politely told my ghosts if they wanted to watch TV, they could watch in the living room, and I went and I turned on the living room TV. I laid back down and closed my eyes, and I heard the blinds moving again. So then I told them, fine, you can watch TV in here, but you're going to do it without the sound on, because I'm tired and I want to sleep. I turned the living room TV off and my bedroom TV on and pushed mute. The blinds didn't move again after that. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a cool story. It's a cool story. Like, yeah. it's spooky, but it's a, it's a cool spooky. It's heartwarming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. It's good. It's good. Um, Sarah, thank you so much, and I hope you enjoyed us reading your stories. Yeah, thank you for sending them in. What a joy to read them. I really loved that. That was awesome. Okay, so I have one more Reddit story, or excuse me, one more story, and this one's from Reddit. Um, this was posted by u slash original mix 9094, and it's titled, You Have Listened. Leave now! I heard a voice scream. My upper body shot up in bed, and I tried to adjust my eyes to the darkness. The moon did not manage to shine its lights through the thick curtains in my bedroom. Despite the late hour and my otherwise deep sleep, I was wide awake and groped for my mobile phone on my bedside table. My heart began to race when I saw the multitude of notifications from my surveillance camera. Someone was trying to break into my house. Once at 1.48 a.m., once at 1.56 a.m., once at 2.14 a.m., and once at 2.37 a.m. My gaze fell to the top corner of the screen, 2.39 a.m. An ice-cold shiver spread over my whole body. I jumped out of bed as if by remote control and locked all the windows and doors. In my mind, I went through all the entrances to my bungalow. The front door was locked, as is the door to the garden. The big window in the living room also locked. I grabbed a knife from the kitchen and locked myself in my bedroom. With trembling fingers, I opened my laptop to look at the camera footage. In the background of the tape, I recognized a movement and a red dot. A few seconds later, the screen was soaked in red, milky light and nothing could be seen. I fast forward the video a little, completely black. Whoever wanted to break into my house knew what they were doing. They had taped off the lens but forgotten the motion detector. Again, my gaze falls to my smartphone but no further notifications. Still, I didn't feel comfortable. Not alone. I could not be alone. Determined, I pressed one of the speed dial buttons. Before I could even bring the phone to my ear, a sharp pain ran through my head. I dropped the phone and pressed both my hands against my temples. This must be the sleep deprivation. Babe, are you there? Hello? I heard softly. I picked up the phone again. Yes, I'm here. Can you come here, please? Someone tried to break in, and I just, I don't feel safe. I explained on the verge of tears. My friend assured me he would be with me in a short while, as he was just nearby anyway. A few minutes later, my doorbell rang. I turned the key in the lock and let my boyfriend in. I hastily told him a short version of the events. He accompanied back to my bed. He stroked my hair soothingly while I told him about the voice in my head and the pain that went through me. I guess my subconscious didn't want me to call you, I quipped. He turned me towards him and smiled at me. 
His fingers ran down my cheek towards my chin. His smile was different, not so soft and warm. It was cold and unsettling. The moment he wrapped his fingers around my neck with a painful force, I suddenly realized why he was near my house. Desperately, I fumbled for the knife that I had taken with me for this very reason, but it was too late. Just before I lost consciousness forever, his words echoed in my head. You should have listened to your subconscious. Oh, that's creepy. 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 <laughs> Ooh, yeah. When you said, like, um, sorry, when you said that the friend was in the area, I was like, who's in the area at, like, 2.30-something in the middle of the night? They're involved. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nailed it. <laughs> oh, good stories. Those were so great. Okay, what do you have for us today? Ooh, I have a fun story. Good. Um, to preface it, I'm just going to tell you how I came about this story. It's one I forgot about for a while, but then I was watching Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And there's an episode about a haunted apartment where a mom kept on having these wild dreams with like, these repeating numbers and then kept on seeing this girl who looked like she needed help and she reported it to the police and it turned out to be a murder victim and the numbers that she saw in the dreams were the coordinates of where they believed the body to be buried. However, Hmm. they never found the body. So that's why it's still an unsolved mystery. Okay. Gotcha. So I was like, oh, this story's insane. Started looking it up. And I came across someone's personal blog where they were talking about this apartment in the Unsolved Mysteries episode. And they briefly mentioned how they went ghost hunting at the Shiloh Inn in Salt Lake City. Mm, Okay. And I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot about that. So here we are. My story today is called The Leaping Longos. And on today's episode of What Cult Did It This Time, we have the story of the infamous familicide at the Shiloh Inn of Salt Lake City, Utah. The David family was like any other American family. At least, by all appearances, they seemed that way. But behind the scenes, something much sadder, much more sinister was brewing in the minds of the parents, Charles and Rachel. As many of my stories do, this one starts at the hands of a crazy religious cult the ripples of which are still being felt to this day. It's evident that people close to the crime are in denial that the man they knew was a manipulative, twisted narcissist who would do anything to come off as having pure intentions. In fact, I found Charles, um, basically his family history account online where people left really nice comments about him, about his character saying, all I knew him was that he was just, he was a great guy. He would help everyone. And I'm like, this is part of the facade. This is why he was allowed to get away with so much. Mm-hmm. So Charles. Sorry, side note. Do you remember the Beast of Jersey episode? Yes. Same thing. Whole town loved the guy. That's why he was never suspected. That's right. He was a handyman. He played Santa Claus for the kids. You remember? So that's how they get you. Every time. It's the ones you don't suspect. Yep. Ted Bundy, womanizer. Exactly. Boom. Sorry, keep going. No, that's all right. Go listen to that episode if you haven't, by the way. It's really good. It's messed up. I love it. (laughs) So Charles Bruce Longo was born on November 9th, 1938 in New York. He eventually made his way over to Utah where he was an LDS missionary 
and he returned being an active member of the church. Over time, however, something changed in his mind. People who knew him noticed a shift in his behavior, and especially how he viewed himself and the people around him. Rather than being the church-going family man that he was known for, he became obsessive and delusional. By the year 1969, Charles had changed completely, which was a massive cause for concern for his family. He changed his name to Emmanuel David and started to preach to those who would listen that he himself was God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost wrapped into one being on earth. And in 1969, he and his followers were excommunicated from the LDS church, and they set off to start their own cult, calling themselves the Family of David. Mm. Now, to understand the events that followed, let's take a look into just what exactly the Family of David believed. I found this next bit from a Deseret News article recounting a testimonial letter members of the family of David signed and sent. This was a letter recounting their beliefs. They believed that not only was Emmanuel, a.k.a. Charles, an all-encompassing God, but that they were each a figure from the Bible like Moses, Adam, Eve, Abraham, and were all reincarnated on the earth. They also believe, and I quote, White people are the real Israelites and true children of God. The star of David belongs to Emmanuel David and not to the Jews. So this is just messed up on so many levels. Clearly, these guys are delusional. Sounds like it. The remaining members of the family of David also say they don't believe that Emmanuel nor his wife committed any crimes and that any day now he will have his second coming and come back to the earth. So just keep these wild beliefs in the back of your mind throughout the rest of the story. Um, perhaps just to offer some insight is all as to why this stuff could have happened in the first place. A neighbor of the Longos reported that Emmanuel was a crazy bearded man and he would walk around carrying a three and a half foot long sword, claiming the time would soon come that he would be able to use it and lop off thousands of heads. So what, what a unit move. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, needless to say, he definitely wasn't sane. Sure. So along with Emmanuel David's excommunication, um, also known as Charles, I'm just going to call him David from here on. Sure. But with his excommunication, he was committing some financial crimes in the background, um, specifically with wire fraud. So the authorities were hot on his trail, and it's no doubt in my mind that he was fully aware of an impending arrest or something that would get him caught. On July 31st, 1978, David hopped in a borrowed white Ford pickup truck that he borrowed from his friend and went for a good old drive up the canyon. Once he found the perfect spot, he put the truck in park and hopped out. He attached a hose to the exhaust pipe and ran it through the driver's side window. He then hopped in the truck and stuffed the cracked window with rags so he could seal himself inside with the hose feeding him toxic fumes. He died from carbon monoxide poisoning. Once it was figured out who this dead man was inside of the truck, they called his wife Rachel, who when informed of her husband's death expressed, quote, excitement and concern. Okay. Which is a very weird reaction to finding out that your husband committed suicide and you are left alone with six children. Yeah. We can confidently say his suicide wasn't an act of religious martyrdom, 
as his followers so willingly believe and defend. But he died a selfish man, avoiding the impending consequences of his criminal actions. A selfish man, indeed. He left behind a wife and six children who thought he really was God and that he was sending them a message of what to do next. On August 3rd, 1978, just three days after the family found out David committed suicide, Rachel and her children did something so grotesque and disgustingly sad that people all over Utah heard about it, and it has become a local legend. A delivery truck driver was near the International Dunes Hotel, now known as the Shiloh Inn, in Salt Lake City, where he heard the sounds of children screaming above him. He looked up and was horrified as he watched a woman throwing children off of her 11th floor balcony down to the concrete below. August 3rd started like a normal day for the International Dunes Hotel. At the time, the David family was living at the hotel for $90 a day. They were ordering catered meals from the hotel. They were living a luxury life, and people didn't know how because they didn't have jobs. So they'd been paying in cash daily, and since no one knew where they were getting the funds, it can be assumed that David was doing this through fraud. Well, with the news of David's passing, Rachel felt the only way to be reconnected with her husband was to join him in death. Rachel took three chairs out of the hotel room and stacked them one on top of another on the balcony to their room. And keep in mind, this is 11 stories high. At 7.21 that morning, Rachel walked out onto the balcony with her oldest daughter, taking each of the other children by hand and helping them onto the stacked chairs. Surely, she was getting them excited, saying things like, You're going to see your dad again. We're almost there. The oldest children went first. One by one, they climbed the stack of chairs, stood on the railing, and leapt to their deaths, meeting the ground some 200 feet below. According to witnesses, the last three children to jump were kicking, screaming, bawling, and doing anything they could to fight their mom, an older sister who had just murdered their other siblings. It's reported that onlookers watched Rachel and her daughter forcibly grab each of the last three children and toss them over the edge. They were clinging to the railing, and they had to pry each of their fingers off so that they could get a better grasp on them. These little kids clearly didn't want to die, and I can't even begin to fathom the utter terror they felt knowing their turn was next. What those last moments must have been like, I hope I never know, and I hope no one else has to know. The oldest daughter then went willingly. She leapt to her death, and then mother followed soon after. Some of the bodies hit the roof of the hotel coffee shop below, bouncing off and splattering on the ground below. Some children initially survived the impact and were rushed to the hospital. Seven bodies hit the ground that day, and all but one survived. Luckily, the police had their heads screwed on straight and classified this as a homicide, not suicide. And I say this specifically, um, keeping in mind the Jonestown Massacre, um, because that's a case I've been studying for quite a while, and it's insane to me that people call the Jonestown Massacre suicide and not a murder. Even though some of the children and Rachel willingly leaped off the balcony, they were murdered. David had them so brainwashed, and they became so devoted to him, that they would do anything for him, even if that meant taking their own lives. And why did David die? Because he knew about his impending charges, and I'm sure of it. Not for some religious cause that he had his family believe. 
The daughter who survived was brought to the hospital with both of her legs broken and had multiple injuries to her pelvis, arms, jaw, teeth, tongue, shoulders, and spleen. She also suffered a traumatic brain injury and would have to use a wheelchair for the rest of her life. About a dozen members of the family of David Colt, including the one surviving daughter, live in Washington and Colorado. In an article written in the year 2000, and I'm saying the year because I'm not sure how many members are still alive, if any at all, the article states that the cult still believes David is God and that they're actively preparing for his second coming. And every year, they meet together in northern Idaho at a place called, I think it was called Priest Lake, to have a camp out. So, maybe don't go there when they're there. Wow, gross. Soon after the familicide, guests at the hotel started experiencing unusual things. They claimed to hear the sounds of children screaming on the 11th floor, a woman weeping, and even claiming to see the apparitions of the children running around and going into the elevators. The pinball machines go off on their own, echoing laughter is often heard in the empty pool area, and even the maintenance man says his tools are moved around when no one else is there, and he has seen light bulbs become unscrewed. The hotel has since undergone new construction. It's passed through the hands of various owners, but the lore remains the same. The story of a mother killing her children is what everyone knows. The less commonly known is how the mother got to her brinking point, all from the manipulation of a cult leader, which she called her husband. So, dear listeners, cults are everywhere. They're nothing of the past. This only happened in the 70s, and active members of this cult are still alive today, hoping for the return of their savior, David, a.k.a. normal guy Charles Bruce Longo from New York. Well, that was... Okay, so I learned about this. I think you heard it as well from that ghost tour. Um, Grim Ghost Tours. Have you been on that one? I did at Fear Factory, but I didn't do the Salt Lake one. Okay, so they cover this. Um, They do a really good job. So they take you to the place, and they're giving you the whole story and everything, and you're standing there listening uh, to the guide. And then they drop this bombshell on you and they say, and exactly where you're standing is where the bodies landed. (laughs) And so now that my wife and I, whenever we're downtown and we drive past it, we go, oh, dead bodies. We're right there. Yeah. They they went splat right there. But that's such a sad, like so sad. Um, Yeah. And like you said, that daughter that did survive, she, as far as I know, she's still alive. Yeah, um, I think when I read the article that came out in 2000, it mentioned she was 38 at that time. So she's easily still alive Okay. if her injuries aren't. I mean, it's not clear how severe they were, but I imagine she's still alive because she was living with her uncle mm-hmm. who joined the cult. So she had a chance to escape. I forgot to mention this. Um, after the hospital and after she was recovering, she went to a foster home and then was moved in with her uncle, who was a cult member. So she had a chance to escape, and it was ripped from her. Well, I heard she still believes Yeah, that her dad is still this divine being, and so she, yeah, she's all about it still, Yeah, even though <laughs> she tried to off herself. So wait, so is she like mentally with it then? 
Because I thought she was completely brain dead for the rest of her life. I'm not entirely sure. Okay. I did find something that said she had a brain injury. Right. But I'm not sure how severe it was. Okay. But considering the state of her body, I wouldn't be surprised if her brain is not as it once was. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Very sad story. Um, I just can't believe like what those kids had to go through in their last moments, just clinging on for dear life and having the one person left in their life that should be protecting them is the one that's actually um, going to end them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Rough. And the reason I compare it to Jonestown is, and I'll, you know, Jonestown, Jonestown isn't a Utah story, but it's just one I've become like really like involved in. I just mean like I've watched so much about it because I think it's so interesting. But the reason I compare it is because people say, Jonestown was a mass suicide. In my opinion, it was a mass murder. Granted, these Mm -hmm. people took their lives willingly to some extent, um, considering that there were armed guards watching them at the pavilion, making sure that they drank the flavor aid. Um, (laughs) Is that what they call it? Well, that's what it was. It wasn't Kool-Aid. It was flavor aid. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. So, yeah, I know that these children jumped off willingly, some of them. But if you really think about it, they just thought that their dad was the savior and that he had just died and that they were about to see him again and that it was like the coming of times for their religion. So they thought they were doing what they had to do. Right. Right. So, yeah, it was straight up murder. Okay, well, I'm bummed out now. (laughs) That's such a sad story. Ah, Sorry, guys. (laughs) Don't be sorry. Um, it's, uh, It's not like that it's, a good thing to know, but it's a good thing that we don't forget that the yeah. uh, these kids' lives. Yeah, right? exactly. Well, thank you for that story. That was yeah. a good one. That's oh, and guys, check out our Instagram because I not only did I find pictures of David and his children and his tombstone, I also found a crime scene sketch of where each of the bodies landed. Ooh, okay. I'm excited to see those. All right. Well, do you, do you have anything else for us? That's it. I hope everyone's staying jolly and spooky right now. Awesome. Okay, guys, we will scare you in the next one. Stay spooky. Bye.